It's so good to be here uh, tonight. Good to have you guys here joining us. And um, I was just thinking, uh, as, as I've been preparing, really over the last couple of weeks, uh, what a blessing it is to be able to, uh, to be going through um, this series together, to be going and, and picking up each week's Torah portion and, and digging into it and, and, and studying that together. And, and specifically what I've been thinking about with that is knowing as I'm studying during the week that um, many of us are reading and studying the same thing throughout the week. I just, I, I find so much power in that. Cause, so then when we get together, we come together on Saturday night um, like we kind of all have our we have our minds kind of centered and, and ready to go and dig into the text together. So I've just been thinking about how um, how powerful that is. And so um, we're going to be in beginning in Numbers chapter thirty. We're actually going to finish the book of Numbers tonight, which is a huge piece of scripture. It is a uh, it's a double portion week, double Torah portion week. Uh, those of you that are visiting with us, we've been going through a series of uh, the weekly Torah readings, and that's what we've been studying together on Saturday evenings. And, uh, and so periodically, as you go through that, um, you'll come upon one like this, where it's a double portion. There's two different Torah portions that have been put together. Um, and like I've been kind of looking and trying to figure out, so why is that? Or trying to figure out like rhyme and reason and things like that. But And some of it has to do with like timing. As things fall on the calendar, um, there are specific Torah portions that uh, relate directly to one of the high holy days as well. So uh, we've got a big, big piece of, of scripture tonight. And, um, and and I'm excited to get into it as we, as we come on the end of the hills of, of what we were um, talking about last week as we finished our discussion last week talking about this modim, uh, these appointed times. There's these times on the calendar that, uh, that our God said, here are the days that I want you to meet with me. You know, and we went and looked back. Remember, we looked back at Genesis chapter 1 and, and uh, the reality of when when our God created everything and the rhythm in which he created that. He created darkness and light and separated those. Remember that? And then he went through and we get to the point where he creates like the vegetation and the grass and the trees and stuff like that. And then we realize it wasn't until day four that he created the sun and the moon, right? And, and we had to kind of deal with that reality of, oh, wait a minute, we've been taught forever that, that sun helps plants grow, but the reality is the plant life, the vegetation was created and was growing before the sun was even created, which means he is ultimately, as we know, like logically, but then when you see how this applies it, he is actually not only the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of all things. He sustains the life that he creates. And that what it says about the creation of the sun and the moon is that he put those things in place for times and seasons. And that word seasons is is translated from the Hebrew word modim, which means appointed time. So he put sun and moon in place so we would know appointed time, so that we would know when we were supposed to meet with him. And so last week, we finished up our discussion with um, kind of looking at how he laid out some of these appointed times, that there are specific days on a calendar that you know these are days that you're supposed to meet with him. And some of those days are uh, to be days of rest. There are, some of those days are holy convocations or days that you're supposed to celebrate with him. So coming off of that, at the end of Numbers chapter 29, we now come into Numbers chapter 30. Um, we're going to spend um, a, the majority of our time in the first portion this week, uh, which is called uh, Matot, right? Does that sound right to y'all? Matot, um, something like that. That, uh, that translates as tribe. The second portion is Masay, which translates into journey. So we're going to first talk about Matot. And so uh, let's start in Numbers chapter 30. Um, beginning in verse 1, it says, Moses spoke to the priest of the tribes of Israel, saying, This is what Adonai has commanded. Whenever a man makes a vow to Adonai, to Yahovah, our God, or swears an oath to, uh, to obligate himself by a pledge, 
He is not to violate his word, but do everything coming out of his mouth. And we are going to ask that uh, our God would bless the reading of his word tonight. Amen. Okay, so um, in this first portion, kind of tying into, or this first couple of verses, tying into what Susan was talking with the kids about, um, there are these two things that come up. First of all, he talks about a vow, and then he talks about an oath. And so kind of in my head, as I first read through that, I'm thinking that basically you're talking about the same things, a vow or an oath. Those are not the same things, though. And there is a difference in the text, and there's a purpose for the difference that's in the text, that there are two different words there. This is not one of those situations where um, oftentimes in English, you'll have a, a word and then a completely different word that kind of has the same meaning. That is not the case here. They didn't just use vow in one place and oath in another. They actually are two different Hebrew words that were translated there. So the idea then is that that word vow, uh, which is binding unto the Lord, is a promise to do something or refrain from doing something. So you're making a vow to either do something or to not do something. But then that word oath is a sworn testimony that something is true or false. So that word oath is talk is is kind of more along the lines of something that would be uh, legally binding. That that you are you are you are going on oath. You are making an oath that this was true or this was false. Does that make sense? So two two separate words there. But what I really wanted to kind of zero in here is that word, he shall not break, that word halal. It's the Hebrew word halal, to break. Um, that word, the word halal is a big, loud word in comparison to our English word break. So, so to say that I, I know that I said I was going to do whatever and then kinda, I, I kind of broke my word. That, that breaking that we got into English to break, don't, don't break that word or to break your word, the word halal, it actually means to defile or, or to profane. See, the, the issue here of breaking words is the difference in defiling or profaning yourself versus keeping your word which sanctifies you. You see the difference between those two things? Halal defiles you. And, and we've been through, as we've, as we've done this sweeped through Torah, we've seen all of the processes that needed to be put into place for someone to be, for someone to be ritualistic or ceremonially clean. So, so for instance, if, if you were uh, of the tribe of Levite and you were one of these that, ha- that were responsible for taking an offering on behalf of the people, something like breaking a word defiles you. It, it makes you no longer able to do the thing that God has set you apart to do. So this is a, this is a big, big thing. And, and it's not just big here in these two verses that we're looking at in Numbers chapter 30, but it is a theme throughout the Scriptures. And Susan talked about Jesus' teaching uh, on what we know to be the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he talked about this, this thing of making an oath. And he, he simply said, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. When, when you make a vow or you, or you make an oath, you are making that unto a holy God. So when you don't keep that or you break that word, you are thus defiling yourself. It's to put it in terms that I would understand, it's the opposite of what we're wanting to do as we're chasing after his heart. Does that make sense? So this, this idea, and so um, we see Jesus' teaching. I wanted to point this out too in Matthew chapter 12. And I put together some notes for you again, uh, just to back up that first box that's on your notes here. I realize that you can't read that. I put that there for the purpose of your own study, okay? I, I put, there's another thing, a couple pages down with a map that like you are not gonna be able to see that. And I know that. I put those there for your own purpose, for, I mean, for your own uh, study time. So you can go back and kind of find these things and put them in an image that is easier for you to see. 
I realize you can't, you can't read that stuff. So there's a couple of those things in there. Um, so I wanted to, we're going to look at a couple of different verses here that talk about the importance of our, of our words and, and how our words are used to either build up or tear down and how this was a theme throughout. And so uh, in Matthew chapter 12, says, uh, Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Who was he talking about if he says you're a brood of vipers? You, I mean, typically we were talking to Pharisees. We were talking about very, very religious people whose hearts were very far from very far from God. And, and these were the people that at one point he called whitewashed tombs. You know, you remember like, you look really, really good on the outside. Inside of you, you're filled of death and decay. So he's talking to the Pharisees here and he calls them snakes. Like, I mean, you're basically, you're like Satan, you know? So you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So he said that on that day of judgment, you're going to be held accountable for every careless little word that you speak. And that's a hard, hard teaching. You know, we can, we can talk about, as we've been walking through Torah and, and reading about the teachings and instructions of Yahovah, our God, and we come across things like, that's, that's tough, that's... That's pretty hard. We're going to deal with that again tonight. But that's tough teaching. That the words that you speak are measured. That good comes out when that's who you are. And when you are not that, the evil comes out. And, and like, you know, I know that we kind of know that that old Sunday school kind of thing, that garbage in, garbage out type idea. But what is it that's inside of you that allows good to come out of you? Most of us have come to a place where we realize that there's nothing really good in us apart from the one true living God and his spirit that indwells us. So when good comes out, it comes directly from him and him abiding in us, but also relative to our nearness to him? And how do we walk with him? How do we commune with him? What are the things that we do on a regular basis to chase after him? Is when we do those things, whatever those things are for you, and, and you know, we, we talk a lot about the importance of, of spending time in the scriptures, now, how do we know, you know, when, when the Bible says things like sin is lawlessness, and we know that we're supposed to avoid sin, but if sin is lawlessness, that will, like, which laws, right? Well, if we don't know his word, how do we know how to live? How do we know how to go after him? So we talk about importance of things like being in the word, to study the scriptures. We talk about things like spending time with him in prayer, that, that silent time of, of communion with him, of confessing our weaknesses and our shortcomings to him, to, to asking him to be a part of the things that we're doing, to taking sickness and illness and things that are that we're aware of, like that spending that time communing with him. And then also we talk about things like worship and regularly seeking him in worship and, and offering him the praise that he deserves. And the more time that we spend in those types of activities, the more that good comes out. Does that make sense? I, I, I'm not, we're not splitting an atom here tonight, right? I mean, 
This, this is how we do that. But what I, the other side of that, what I want you to think about is what are the things that you give your time to that actually rob you of those things? What are the things? And oftentimes actually steal joy from you. But we, we continue to go back to them. So here's how our conversation, our way of living, but also directly our words, the things that we say and how those affect people. But how do we give the good? How do we give life to people with the things that we say when we're constantly only putting things in that actually steal joy from us? That, that take away from this life-giving word and, and that life-giving time of prayer, that life-giving time of worship and being around God's people. So we end up robbing ourselves a lot of time. Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Solomon, right? One of the most wise human beings that ever lived. Talking about the mouth. King David in Psalm 19. And just a beautiful psalm. Like you might write down, go read all of Psalm 19. Um, where it talks about how life-giving the law is to him. That in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. That word is Raison, to bring pleasure, to find favor, to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable. Again, we read that if you just get the word acceptable, you really lose the power of what King David was saying. It's not just like we know acceptable. Like I, I went all the way through school and got multiple degrees trying to get done what was acceptable, right? Here, is that acceptable? Are, are you good? Like when you, when you approach things as like trying to make it acceptable, you have a tendency to think, well, I skated by, right? It was acceptable. But that's not the word that is here to bring pleasure, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart bring pleasure to you. Well, that changes the dynamics of the verse completely. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart find favor with you. That was the one that was really powerful for me. To think that there are things that I can say and do with my life that gains favor from the one true living God. Remember last week when we were talking about um, this reality of Moses not being able to be the one that takes him into the promised land and that's coming. And Moses says, please, like, let's name somebody that's going to lead the people in. If I'm not going to go, let's get somebody to do it. And Yahuwah says, it's Joshua. He's going to be it. He's going to be the one. And we talked about that moment where like the name of Joshua was on the mouth of God. He named him. That's, my, that's the one. He's the one that will take them in. He will take them into the land, conquer it the way I've already told you it's gonna happen. He's my man. He's the one that's gonna do it. And the very name of Joshua was on the mouth of God. Like that's, that's huge to think about that moment of your name being the one that's on the mouth of God. You have that same re reaction from this idea of raison, not just, not just doing enough to be acceptable. I, I kind of get that because I know me. So to say that he accepts me, I, I get that. But to think that the words of my, my mouth and the meditations of my heart could find favor with him, in the way that Joshua found favor with him to take the nation of Israel into Canaan is, it's mind-blowing. And we get, we get so limited by our language at times, but I think of the richness of that and what King David was saying.
Ephesians chapter four, verse 29 says, let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fit for the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. Do your words provide uplifting grace to people? It's just a simple question. It's something for us to, to kind of wrestle with. Do, do our words bring, bring grace to the conversation? Do we lift people up with the things that we say? In Colossians chapter four, beginning of verse two, it says, now continue steadfastly in prayer. So Paul is concluding his letter to the church at Colossae. And he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best of the times. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. First John chapter two, verse four through six. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if you're gonna say that you abide in him, then you should walk as though he walked. It's, again, this is not stuff that like, this is not stuff that you have to like go to seminary to find out. Like this is, if you're going to be in this world who he's called you to be, we've got to live it out and walk it out like this. So as this week's Torah portion starts, and, and he gets like directly to it with, this is what Adonai, Yahuwah, has commanded. Whenever a man makes a vow to Adonai or swears an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he is not to violate it, his word, but do everything according to his mouth. So what he's saying, when you do that, you set yourself apart. When you, when you make the vow, when you make the oath, you are setting yourself apart unto him. When you break that word, you are now defiling yourself and you're separating yourself from him. And when we have example after example after example from the scripture on how that actually walks itself out. Okay, so I wanna get into um, Numbers 31. It, it, it goes into, um, in, in chapter 30, it goes into uh, how the law plays out with someone who makes an oath and how um, if, they, if they were to decide to not do the oath, how it's binding and how it's not binding and who can say the oath is or who can say the oath is not. There's, there's a lot of specifics in the rest of chapter 30 that get into that. Uh, for time's sake, we're gonna move to 31, but I wanted you to get that first portion there that says, when you do this, you're separating yourself unto God. When you break your word, you're, you're now defiling yourself. You're profaning yourself. And what we see as it carries out is you, you're, you're doing damage to the people around you as well because you have an obligation to them also. I think specifically about being a husband and being a father and make a vow and an oath. All right. Guys, this is, this is a real thing. Like, if you're married, if you're a married person, you made a vow. And that's, this is why that vow is not to be taken lightly. And I see it so often, and it feels like it's just, it's everywhere. And listen, I, I, I'm, I'm the result, I came from this. My parents divorced when I was very young. I was four, I think. So I know, like I know what comes from that. When you make vows, you're not just telling somebody that you're going to do something. 
You are connecting yourself to the God of creation. If I don't follow through with the vows that I made, it doesn't just impact my life. Do you see that? When, when that word break is, when we get that, but what it actually means is that you're defiling yourself, you're profaning yourself, you're separating yourself, you're pulling yourself away. Whereas the opposite of that is when you keep that word, you sanctify yourself, you set yourself apart unto him. But when I break my vow, it not only hurts me and in, in, in my relationship with him, with him, but there's also fallout beyond that. There, there are other people who have a negative impact on their life as a result of my lack of willingness to follow through on the thing that I said I was going to do. Does that make sense? It's not just you. So I can talk specifically about my family because there was a vow that was made there on how I was going to love, honor, cherish, but then also lead that group of people. If I don't do that, yes, I suffer, but also they suffer a great deal. And then as we look at, we talk where, where um, was it Paul that was talking about how your conversation in Colossians, he talks about like being gracious with it and having it seasoned with salt. When, when you break vows and you separate yourself, those other people who need, they need to experience that grace, they're not going to do that because you didn't keep your vow that you made. So the impact of it is far beyond just, just you and just, well, I didn't do it. You know, I'll suffer whatever the consequences are for not doing that thing or for not keeping my word in that way. That's not it. You don't just get to take yourself off the hook because like, well, I'll just, I'll just wear that. I mean, it's on me, right? No, it, it's the ripple effect. It goes out from there. It has a huge impact on the world in which you live. It's huge. Okay, Numbers chapter 31. All right, so um, the context is important here. So we're gonna go back now two weeks ago. We talked to Pastor Paul was here. He talked to us about Balaam and Balak and talked about how, you remember the story of Balaam? He's the one whose donkey talked to him. Remember that whole thing? And, and he was on the road to go to Balak. Balak had, had summoned him and said, I need you to come because I want you to curse Israel. Balaam was supposedly some kind of prophet, but what he knew, what he had a reputation for was he had the ability to bless and curse. Now, does that make you a prophet? I think that as we walk through that, we could all agree that, that that's not prophecy. That's dabbling in the, in the black, dark arts, right? And so, but he had something. And so Balak sent for him. So he's on his way. His donkey talks to him. He's like, what are you what are you doing? I'm trying to keep you from getting killed by the angel of God that's standing in front of you. So, but what ended up coming as a result of that is Balaam explained to Balak, God's not going to allow me to curse his people. But he did tell him what he could do. If you'll send your daughters in to mingle among the camp, they will then start worshiping their false gods, and then God will kill them. So I can't curse them, but if you'll do this, God's going to get angry with them and he'll wipe them out. So that we had that two weeks ago. So now we're coming to, because God doesn't forget those kind of things. Like, remember that. And, and when we talk about this, Balaam comes up a lot throughout the scriptures. We hear about Baal a lot, this, this false god. If you, if you were here when we studied Revelation, he came up several times as we led up to that. First uh, and second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude, several different places where it talks about Baal and it talks about Balaam. Baal is, became this, uh, this false religion where they had these false gods, but there was this mixture of that with Torah. It, it, it became like they started trying to mix these two things together because 
they, they started intermingling. So these people who worshipped pagans and these people who worshipped God, but then they started marrying and like all kinds of stuff going on. And so you ended up with this mixture of the two and God wasn't pleased with it. And he didn't forget it either. So now we are here in chapter 31. It says, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. So the Midianites were the ones who sent their women in. They seduced the men in Israel. Then they began to worship false gods. And then God killed 24,000 of them, remember? So now, because he didn't forget that, now he's going, now we're going to avenge that thing, okay? So avenge the people of Israel on the Midians. Afterwards, you shall, be, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to war. So there were provided one of the thousand of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed, armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. Do you remember Phinehas? Phinehas was the one that when they, um, this one, uh, elder, this, this leader of one of the tribes that brought one of the Midianite women to the, temp, to the tabernacle and started consummating a relationship with that person there. Phineas was the one that was like, this can't happen, took a spear and ran it through both of them, killed them both on the spot, and that stopped the, the curse of the people dying. It was Phineas's zeal for his holiness when he went and took, took that and made it stop at that moment. And as a result of that, Yahovah said, Phineas is now mine. He set him apart to be in that Levite tribe, that priestly tribe, even though Phineas had married an outsider, thus nullifying his ability to serve in that capacity. But because of his zeal for God, he got that right back. He got that opportunity back. So, so, with, um, so Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpet for the alarm in their hands. They warned against Midian, they warred against Midian, and the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of, the Midian, of Midian and the rest of their slain. Evi, Rakim, Zer, Hur, Reba, and the five kings of the Midians. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Balaam, after what he had done, apparently just stayed with the Midianites. I mean, like he knew what he had done. Does it, again, we kind of have to ask that question, does that sound like a prophet of God? The things that he chose to do, and then he just stayed with them. So when they went to make war, apparently he's just there with them. And so he dies with the rest of the men. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took a plunder of all their, they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all of their encampments, they burned with fire and took all the spoils and all the plunder, both of men and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoils to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of the Moab by the Jordan of Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all of the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. So the wars, he sent them out to war. They defeated the Midianites. They destroyed all of their cities. They killed the men. And then they took captive all of the women and all of the children. And then they also took all of the livestock and, and just the plunders of war. They took everything and they came back. 
Now, Moses and Eleazar, who is the high priest at the time, go out to meet him outside the camp. You know why they had to go meet him outside the camp? There's, some, there's something that, that we studied a few weeks ago coming in that, that dictates why they had to go outside the camp. There, death. Death makes you unclean, right? So these people are returning from war so you know they've been around it. They've, they've either killed or they've been in contact with someone who was killed. So they go to meet them out. But the response is not really what you would expect it to be at this point because he knows that they went out and did what, what he instructed them to do, kind of, okay? Uh, they go to meet outside the camp. Verse 14, and Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commander of the thousands and the commander, commanders of the hundreds, who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? So they go and do what they think that they were supposed to do. They come back. Moses meets them outside the camp and he is furious with them. Like, don't you remember what happened? You let all of the women live? It was the women who caused the problem. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all of the young girls who have not known man by lying with him Keep alive for yourselves and camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person or whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all works of goat's hair and every article of wood. Now, here's what I found really fascinating about this text as it finishes. When he says to keep all of the young girls for yourself, do you see what he did there? He told them to purify them, to cleanse them. It, it made me, as I was reading it, it made me believe that he was actually welcoming them into their families. That, like that blew my mind. Why, why, would, you, why would you go through the, the purification process with them if they're just gonna be slaves? You see, where, you see what I'm saying? Whoever of you has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourself and your captives. Like I'd, I'd read through this several times over the course of the last couple of weeks and leading into this, and that had never really like, but then all of a sudden it just jumped out like, why are we purifying the captives? What's the purpose in purifying the captives? Unless you're bringing them in. You, you realize that the majority of us are the outsiders, Right? that at some point we were, we were brought in, we were cleansed, we were purified, we were put through this process because of the blood of Jesus. That we were once the people who were without hope and that we were, we were enslaved to a certain way of living, but that we were invited in as orphans. These, these girls, orphans. These, these girls with, without family, right? 
It doesn't take a lot of logic to just like, with what just happened, they don't have anybody. But they were, they were brought in. They were cleansed. They were, they were purified and brought into the camp. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. Just an incredibly powerful picture right in here in the middle of something that seems. That's tough teaching, right? I mean, this, this is the type of teaching that they say in the church world creates seats. You don't, you don't grow mega churches teaching a lot about the vengeance of the one true living God, where he talks about, hey, remember? Remember how they went and they defiled themselves? Remember what they did to my name? Because that's what they, we were created in his image, right? Satan's whole thing is like, he knows that he doesn't have the power to defeat God, but if he can ruin the image bearer, it affects his glory. He can rob him of his glory. When, when ba- like Balaam's sin, that's not a small thing. And you, you know, because of, as Pastor Paul talked about, the, the amount of biblical real estate that Balaam gets, it comes up over and over and over and over. The sin of Balaam, the sin of Balaam, the sin of Balaam. And then you start realizing the connection between what Balaam did and everything that has Baal connected to it. It's not, this is not a small thing that he did. And God didn't forget it. And what he said is, I'm going to avenge it. He does that in a big way towards the end of the book. He's very serious about his name and he's very serious about his glory. And when those things start being compromised, when when his image bearers become the bearers of that other junk, he doesn't take that lightly. And we see it around us so much where we've taken like a little bit of truth and we've mixed it with all of this other stuff that makes us comfortable and it makes us feel like, well, at least I kind of have a connection to something else. He's not honored in that. And he doesn't forget it either. And listen, it is embedded in the Western church. It's it's everywhere. And we disguise it in so many different ways. But just like he didn't forget what Balaam did when he told Balak, here's how you get them. Here's how you get God to just kill them. And he didn't forget that and he avenged it. He's, to this day, he still has not forgotten that or any of the other things that we've done to make his name common. Like we, we talk about that thing to make his name common. His name is, is not common. It should, should never be common. It's holy. It's set apart. That's not easy teaching. But it's, it's here. Like, what are we going to do with it? All right, um... As we get into Numbers 32, um, you see, let me switch pages here. Numbers 32 is when Reuben and Gad, um, they, they come to Moses on behalf of, of kind of their tribes and they work cattle and, and sheep. These are kind of your rancher type people. And they go to Moses, they say, hey, this area east of the Jordan here where we are is perfect for our flocks. Is it cool if we just stay here? And they make, an, they make it an arrangement. And Moses says, you arm your men. You go with us into Canaan. Make the land ours. Then I'll allow you to return to this land. So leave your children, leave your flocks, leave your women. Give me the men, arm them, ready for war. 
will go in. Once the land is subdued, I'll allow you to return, and that will be your land. So, so what we see in, in, uh, in chapter 32, um, 33, we get into the, um, the journey of Israel up to this point. And that's another place where I just I dropped a map there. Um, and I did that just so you could see like a little bit of a visual to it and then go Google the map of the Exodus. Then you'll be able to see it and you can blow it up. I, I put this one here because it's the only one that I could find that actually shows all 42 of the stops that the, that the nation of Israel made while they were in the wilderness. So all 42 of them are there. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating to see not just the route that they took, but where they went. Um, it's really, really fascinating to see um, where, where they started the Exodus when they came out of, of Egypt and where they actually went into the promised land is like this far away on the map. And it took them 40 years to get there because they went down here and then they went here and then they went around like this. And then, so, but it's pretty fascinating how close those two pieces of land are together. But 42 different sites that they stopped along the way uh, that, are, that are noted. And so I wanted you to see that map so that when you go and you're doing your, your study, you can go and find this and you can blow it up a little bit bigger and see uh, all of those stops. It's, it's, it's actually really, really good. Um, but then I, I did want to, I wanted to zero in on this in Numbers chapter 33 because this is hugely important and, and, and comes back later on as well. In, in Numbers chapter 33, beginning in verse 50, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all of their figured stones and destroy all of their metal images and demolish all of their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by a lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the, the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your father you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. That's important. That's a hugely important text. It's a, it's a direct commandment that he is giving his people go across the Jordan into Canaan, possess the land. And the only way to do it is to drive out every one of the inhabitants of it. Drive them out, destroy all of their gods, all of their images, all of their high places, destroy all of it. And if you don't, they will become to you like a barb in your eye or a thorn in your side. And then I'm going to do to you the thing that I told you to do to them. This is big. And, and as, we, as we carry forward, and, and even for you in your study of, of the Old Testament, you will see this come back up again, okay? So I wanted to make sure we got that. Now, in Numbers 34, I'm going I'm to try to do it okay. All right, Numbers uh, 34, it goes over the borders of Israel, and, and it says, you know, on this side, it's this. On this side, it's this. There are three different times that we are given kind of the boundaries of what the promised land will be or would be. Um, in Genesis 15, it's given to Abraham. We see this in Numbers 34. In Ezekiel 47 is actually prophecy of when Jesus comes back and what, the, what that promised land will be, his land will be when he returns. So now, this is one of those things where I got in the weeds in my studying this week. When you go and you look at these three different portions that talk about where the promised land is, and where the boundaries of it are, you'll get in the weeds a little bit on that, trying to figure out, okay, how's it situated? And, and where does it reach to on the east side? And where is it on the north side? Like, 
what I think is really, really vitally important for us to remember is that it is a defined space of land. Where all the perimeters of it are, I don't really know. But I can tell you, according to the scriptures, is there is a piece of land that he said, that's, that's my land that my people will possess. And he's very, very serious about that piece of land. That's what we know. Where all of those things are, I don't, I don't really pretend to know all of that. I know that he does and that it's very important land to him. I think that's, that's a big takeaway from us. Now, what's important about that is, um, well, look at, look at this, Joel chapter three, verse two. It says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and they have divided my land. Now, in 2016, there was a UN resolution that did that very thing. I mean, you, this is very easy to find. You can actually go find the resolution, but it did this very thing. It divided his land up. Joel is speaking prophecy. He, he is speaking of things that are to come. He's speaking into the future. And he's saying, I'm going to call the nations to this place and I'm going to enter into judgment with them because they've scattered my people and they've divided my land. He is very serious about this, this piece of land. Do you know why he's serious about this piece of land? What did we start this whole discussion with tonight? The word, making a vow. He entered into a covenant with Abraham. Now, if he's serious about the words that we speak and what those words mean and what they don't mean and, and the reality of if you break a word, what are you doing? You're defiling yourself. Now, is he serious about his covenants? <laughs> is he very serious about his name and his glory? Will he ever do anything that defiles himself? No. This covenant that he made with his people about his piece of land is important. I don't know any other way to say it. It's important. And it's the reason that as an individual standing in front of you, I will support Israel. You need to understand that. The other thing that you need to understand is you are, you are connecting yourself to a church who has very vocally many times said, we will stand with Israel. Those are his people. He's not finished with them. Contrary to some popular belief, he's not finished with his people. He's not finished with his land. I am choosing to be on his side of this. When he says that he's going to gather the nations and he's going to enter into judgment with them, I want to be on the right side of that discussion, okay? All right, Numbers chapter 35 um, is where you get into the city of the Levites. And this was something that, again, in, in the study just brought so much depth of understanding to me. So as it goes through, and um, a few chapters back when they started like trying to parse out the, the land, who didn't get any land? The Levites didn't get any land. Why? Because they're set apart. They're, they're, they're his people. Who do we get out of this tribe? We get priests, right? This is, this is the priestly tribe. So he didn't give them land. Instead, every one of the tribes is to give them land. So they don't have, they don't have an inheritance of their own, but every tribe was commanded, create space, create a city for the Levites. Do you know why this is important? 
You know why it's important that each of those, each of those tribes has a place for the Levites to be? Those are the people that go on their behalf back to the temple, back as we have the tabernacle. Now they go on behalf of the people. So you want to have one close by, right? And so when they go through this, this part in, uh, in chapter 35 with the kind of the command to the people like create cities for the Levites, they're also to give them pasture land. Why are they supposed to give them pasture land? They, they, need, they need those things that they're going to take for sacrifices, right? So they're doing the sacrifices on behalf of their people. So for this tribe, this Levite is going to kind of be assigned to this tribe, and it's his duty to go on behalf of them to take their sacrifice to the tabernacle or ultimately to the temple. Remember we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God never commanded an individual person to make a sacrifice to him. He commanded that to the Levites to go on behalf of their people, and it was so that they could be cleansed when they go into his presence, right? So, so that part was, was pretty significant to me. And then, so there's 42 of these sites, according to the scriptures, that were given, these cities that were given to Levites, plus six more. And these six other cities that were to be established were called refugee, cities of ref, refugee. And it goes into specifics about what that means. And it talks about an individual who accidentally kills somebody. And, and it says very specifically, look, if you had hatred in your heart, if you, if you had this intent to hurt, to harm, and you kill somebody, punishment's death. However, if you're working and you move a rock and it rolls down and it rolls over the top of somebody and kills them, but there was no hatred, there was no intent in your heart to harm them, then you flee to a city of refugee, of, of refuge. You flee to the city. And there you're safe. You're safe in that city of refuge. And you remain there until the high priest dies. Once the high priest dies, then you're free to go back to your land. But basically, this keeps an individual safe from people who they like the avengers of blood. Like they're, they're people that are like, oh, wait, you killed somebody. You got to die. So this would keep them safe. So this was something that, again, I don't know how many times I've read this, but I go, when did that get in the Bible? But, you know, sometimes we have those moments about, you know, so that was one for me. So three of these cities on the east side of the Jordan, which again, that's where those, those two tribes, there's actually two and a half tribes because Manasseh split some of that land. They, they chose some on the east, but they also had some on the west. So these two and a half tribes, they're on that. So you're going to put three cities of refuge on that side, put three west of the Jordan, and then people know where those, those uh, particular places are so that if they need to find refuge, they have a place that they can go. Again, this is a really, really beautiful picture of the gospel. It, like it, periodically you just come across this stuff and like, that's, that's the gospel. That's, that's me. Like I, 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 I do stupid stuff and, and I find myself in, in a position of having to take refuge and Jesus is our refuge. And he, you know, he, so he embeds these little places where the gospel is just, boom, it's right there. Like that's the gospel. You weren't looking for it because you're talking about the Levi's and the land, but look what I did. I showed you my grace right in the middle of it also. So incredibly beautiful. And then uh, chapter 36, um, if you'll remember last week, we talked about these daughters of, uh, oh man, this name, uh, Zelophehad, these five daughters of Zelo Zelophehad. Um, these five daughters. So, so basically this guy, his name starts with a Z, his, like, everybody, he didn't have any sons. He died in the wilderness, but he didn't have any sons. And so there was no one to take the inheritance that, that he was supposed to get because he had no sons. So they went and petitioned Moses, and they said, okay, here's the deal. Our dad died. We have no brothers, so, but we should get an inheritance, right? And, and Yahuwah says, yes, absolutely, they're going to get an inheritance. They're connected to this tribe, and they, they will have their, their peace. This, this, um, Statement in, in chapter 36 about them talks about how 
okay, but if they go and then they, they get their inherited land, but then they marry, then this tribe is going to get that land that was actually Manasseh's land. So the law basically stated, you've got your inheritance, you've got your land, you need to marry inside your tribe. That, that's what chapter 36 is about. So, and then down here, and as it wraps up chapter 36, and we wrap up the book of Numbers, this statement at the end, in, 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 in verse 13, these are the commandments, or the mitzvahs, and the rules, the mishpats, that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. That statement at the end of this book is, is the statement of, I am telling you exactly what I want you to do. These are my judgments. These are the rules. These are the things that I've put into place. Here are the parameters here. As he does so many different times, here's how life works best. Like, fall in line. I've put it together for you. Get in line and do life the way I told you to. It, it will go well for you if you do that. What happens is, after this is over, and it carries out throughout the Old Testament, you continue to see it in the New Testament, is people over and over and over again choosing to do things the way they see it should be done in their own eyes. We do this, we still do this all the time. He told us how life works. Little things like, as we talked about last week, these appointed times. There's something about that. There's something about getting into, we kind of talk about getting into his economy. There's, there's a way that life works best. And if we were to get into that and do it the way he told us to do it, it's going to go well for us. It doesn't mean we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not what I'm saying. But there will be things that push you towards him. And like our, our prayer lives get filled up with things that we, that we want, that we desire, and we've been told that like just like he wants to give you the desires of your heart. He wants to do these things for you. What he wants to do is give you more of him. And what he does in your prayer life is he answers your prayers by giving you more of him. Because we get sidetracked by things that we think that we want and that we think that we need. The reality is what we need is more of him. We, we need things in our life that push us closer to him. Sometimes the things that push us closer to him are the job promotions. Sometimes that does push us closer to him. Sometimes the things that push us closer to him are healthy children who grow up and worship him and give their lives to him. And that, that, those types of things push us closer to him sometimes. But sometimes cancer pushes us closer to him. Sometimes having the bottom fall out of life pushes us closer to him. What we need is more of him. What we think we need are shiny objects. Is that, so when we get distracted in our, in our prayer life, if we could come back to a point of settlement, of understanding that what he gives us is what we need, it may not be what we want, but it's what we need. And what he said at the end of Numbers 36 was, these are the commandments. These are the judgments. These are the rulings of Yahovah. The scriptures are full of these statements where he says, something will happen, then he says, I am the Lord your God. I, and, and you see that all uppercase Lord. The name is Yahovah. yod heh vav -Hey. That's his name. And he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm commanding you. There's not a lot of black, there, there's not a lot of gray there. It's, it's like, here's what I'm telling you to do. But, but we'll spin it. Like, we'll, we'll figure out a way to kind of work it towards something that is more palatable for us. 
There's a way life works best, and it's inside of the way he designed things. That's what this, this book of Numbers, as we've been walking through, that's what it's been all about. It's, I don't know how many times I've, I've heard it's like, oh, man, oh, you're reading through Numbers right now. Well, good luck. I mean, let me know when you're out of that. How rich is this book? And how long have we been here? I don't remember. A month or two in this book? How, how rich, how life-giving. Because over and over again, he says, this is how it works. This is how it works. This is how it works. What, what would happen if we, if we tried to be people of this book? If, if we tried to line our lives up with the things that he said, this is how life works. What would, what would happen as a result of that? I'm telling you, that's, those are the markers I want in my life. There's a, there's a lot of things that we get distracted by. Those are the things I want to mark my life. To be known as someone who chases after him that lives according to the scriptures. That, that's who I want to be. And I don't really care to be anybody else. These are the commandments, the mitzvahs, the rules, mishpat, that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people. 